Hello and welcome to the November Vintage Podcast with me, Alex Clark. Now, regular podcast listeners will recall our feminist special earlier in the spring, in which we looked at the suffragette movement through the eyes of the heroine of a new graphic novel from Brian and Mary Talbot, Sally Heathcote Suffragette. And we also discussed the modern face of feminism with the founders of the Vagenda blog. Well, this month, it's Here Come the Boys as we welcome Adam Thurwell, Yuval Noah Harari and Carl Over Kanausgaard in celebration of International Men's Day. We begin with Yuval Noah Harari, whose book on the history of humankind, Sapiens, was published to much excitement this autumn, hitting the bestseller list and being praised by John Carey in the Sunday Times as the sort of book that sweeps the cobwebs out of your brain, and its author as an intellectual acrobat whose logical leaps have you gasping with admiration. Yuval joins us now to consider why men are not necessarily hardwired to be the dominant sex. Why did men dominate women in almost all known human societies? This is one of the most important questions of history, and surprisingly, we don't really have a good answer. The most common theory points out that men are physically stronger than women, and that they have used their physical strength to force women into submission. A more subtle argument says that the strength of men allowed them to monopolize economic tasks that demand hard manual labor, such as plowing fields and harvesting harvesting corn. This gave men control of food production, which in turn translated into political power. The main problem with this theory, which emphasizes physical strength, is that in human societies there is simply no correlation between physical strength and social power. For example, people in their 60s usually dominate people in their 20s, even though a 20-year-old man is much stronger, usually, than a 60-year-old man. Similarly, think about a cotton plantation in Alabama in 1850. The slaves, the African slaves, who are working in the field are generally much stronger physically than the people in the farmhouse who control the plantation. Or think about the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. How do you become a pope? You don't become a pope by beating up all the other cardinals. It has nothing to do with physical strength. Even in organized crime, the big boss of a criminal organization is not necessarily the strongest man physically. He is often an older man who rarely uses his own fists. He gets younger and fitter men to do the dirty jobs for him. Somebody who thinks that the way to become the big boss is to beat up the current boss is unlikely to to live long enough to learn from his mistake. Even among our chimpanzee cousins, the alpha male wins his position by building a coalition with other males and females, not by using brute violence alone. In fact, if human history teaches us anything, it is that there is an inverse relation between physical power and social power. In most societies, in most human societies, it's the lower class who do the hard manual labor, not the upper classes. P. 
peasants and soldiers and housewives and slaves use far more muscle power than kings and popes and CEOs and generals. Yet the physical power of the peasant or the soldier or the housewife does not translate into social power. Another common theory explains that over millions of years of evolution, men and women evolved different survival and reproduction, stra reproduction strategies. Men competed against each other for the opportunity to impregnate fertile women. Therefore, if you're a man, your chances of reproduction depended above all on your ability to defeat other men. So as time went by, generation after generation after generation, men became ever more aggressive and competitive. A woman, on the other hand, had never much problem finding a man willing to impregnate her. However, if as a woman you wanted your children to survive and to provide you with grandchildren, you needed to carry them in your womb for nine long months and then take care of them for years and years afterwards. During time, you had fewer opportunities to obtain food and you required a lot of help. Basically, according to this theory, you needed a man to help you. Now, in order to ensure your own survival and the survival of your children, you as a woman therefore had little choice but to agree to whatever conditions the man stipulated so that he would stick around and share some of the burden and help with raising the children. As time went by, women, according to this theory, became submissive caretakers who focus on childcare and leave politics and business for men. The result of these different survival strategies is that over the generations, men have become programmed to be aggressive and competitive and to excel in politics and business, whereas women have tended to move out of the way to, and to dedicate their lives to taking care of their husband and their children. So this is the second main theory about why men came to be on top. And this theory too, even though it's very popular among many people, it's deeply flawed. Particularly problematic are the assumptions that women's dependence on external help made them dependent on men rather than on other women. And also it's very problematic, problematic to think that male competitiveness is what made men socially dominant. There are many species of animals, such as elephants and bonobo chimpanzees, in which exactly these dynamics of dependent females and competitive males resulted in the creation of a matriarchal society, a society dominated by females. Since females need external help, they are obliged to develop their social skills and learn how to cooperate and appease. They construct social networks of females that help each member raise her children. Males, meanwhile, spend their time fighting and competing against each other. Their social skills and their social bonds consequently remain underdeveloped. 
Bonobo and elephant societies are therefore controlled by strong networks of cooperative females, while the self-centered and uncooperative males are pushed to the sidelines. Even though bonobo females are still weaker on average than bonobo males, the females can gang up and beat any male that tries to overstep his limits. If this is a model that works well among bonobos and elephants, why can't it work in Homo sapiens? Sapiens, Homo sapiens is a relatively weak animal. Our main advantage is not in physical strength, but it is in the ability to cooperate in sophisticated ways in large numbers. If so, we should expect that dependent women would use their superior social skills to cooperate and to manipulate the aggressive, autonomous, and self-centered men, and we would get a matriarchal society among humans as well. It makes no sense to argue that women were simply too busy with children to be interested in politics and business. Being the main caretakers means that you have more incentive to forge tie with, ties with other people, that you are more concerned to ensure social harmony and adequate, adequate food supply, and that you have more to lose from wars and plagues. Consequently, a mother of three children should be far more interested in politics than a carefree male bachelor. And when it came to actually doing politics, a mother of three should theoretically have been a much better politician than a male bachelor. In order to succeed in politics, you don't need a lot of physical strength. What you need is to build coalitions. And for that, you need to know how to appease people, how to bring people over to your side, and above all, in order to succeed in politics, you need to understand what goes through the mind of other people, particularly what goes through the mind of your enemies. Now, male bachelors are not very good in understanding other people because they are so self-centered. Mothers, on the other hand, are famous precisely for that, for the ability to understand other people and their needs, their desires, their point of view. So it seems that mothers have both the incentive and the abilities to make excellent politicians and to build far stronger social networks than testosterone-charged machos. Yet, the fact is that throughout history, testosterone-charged machos had much more political power than mothers. Why? We don't really know. How did it happen that in the one species whose success depends above all on social cooperation, individuals who are supposedly less cooperative men control individuals who are supposedly more cooperative women? This is the million-dollar question of the history of gender relations, and at present we have no good answer. It remains one of the biggest unsolved riddles of human history. Our thanks to Yuval, 
And from the evolution of masculinity, we move now to a personal portrayal of modern masculinity with a reading from Norwegian literary sensation Karl Over Knausgaard. His series of autobiographical novels has been hailed as a literary masterpiece and sparked debate and controversy for its now infamously direct style and use of autobiographical elements. In this extract from the second volume in the series, A Man in Love, Knausgaard muses on the role of the modern father. When I was in the cafe feeding Vanya, there was always at least one other father there, usually of my age, that is, in his mid-thirties, almost all of whom had shaved heads to hide hair loss. You hardly ever saw a bald patch or a high forehead any longer, and the sight of these fathers always made me feel a little uncomfortable. I found it hard to take the feminized aspect of their actions, even though I did exactly the same and was as feminized as they were. The slight disdain I felt for men pushing buggies was, to put it mildly, a two-edged sword, as for the most part I had one in front of me when I saw them. I doubted I was alone in these feelings. I thought I could occasionally discern an uneasy look on some men's faces in the play area, and the restlessness in their bodies, which were prone to snatching a couple of pull-ups on the bars while the children played around them. However, spending a few hours every day in a play area with a child was one thing. There were things that were much worse. Linda had just started to take Vanya to rhythm time classes for tiny tots at the Stadsbiblioteket library. And when I took over responsibility, she wanted Vanya to continue. I had an inkling something dreadful was awaiting me, so I said no, it was out of the question. Vanya was with me now, so there would be no rhythm time. But Linda continued to mention it, off and on. And after a few months, my resistance to what the role of the soft man in the world was so radically subverted in addition to which Vanya had grown so much that her day needed a modicum of variety, that one day I said, yes, today we were thinking of going to the Rhythm Time course at the Stadsbibliotheke. Remember to get her in good time, Linda said. It fills up quickly. And now I'm delighted to welcome to the studio Adam Thirlwell, the author of the novels Politics and the Escape and the novella Kapow. Now, most recently, he co-edited a really interesting work on translation, Multiples. Adam has also been twice selected for the Granter Best of Young British Novelists. The first time I was on the selection panel and remember well the excitement of reading politics in manuscript. We've got a sneak preview of his new novel, Lurid and Cute, to be published in January. Adam, I love the title of your book, Lurid and Cute. Where did Good. that come from? Um, I don't know where it came from. Well, I do roughly. I mean, that two, I was partly thinking when I was writing this book, there's a sort of crazed narrative voice. And one of the things I was really interested in was trying to, I suppose, have this narrator be as close to you as possible, like slightly kind of so that the whole overall effect was of something almost a bit gruesome. And, um, and there was actually, I think, a passage I was writing in the book where the narrator says... Like it's almost the book is a kind of about how he's going to sort of comes to kind of write this book or talk this book, whatever it is. Um, and he says, you know, I wanted all the kind of things that you're not meant to do, like the sleazy and the gruesome. And then he says, and the lurid and the cute. And I think I was very interested in this idea that there were, 
these terms like so they were aesthetic terms that aren't aesthetic terms like a book should not be either lurid or cute if it's a serious book and so I quite <laughs> liked the idea that and in fact this was actually a completely literal description of the tone of the book that it was at once lurid and cute so because I think lurid is something we associate I don't know with a comic strip or a sort of pulp fiction or yeah something with, like I that. think in my head lurid is Tarantino you know like mm-hmm. lurid is gruesome blood and something kind of horrible violence and and, and also I think what links both of them is some kind of kitschness or something that's kind of not quite right that, that you're not kind of earning your keep aesthetically in some way um like they're not good it's also b-movie kind of tone is what i think of as lurid and you wanted to write a kind of b-movie book well i wanted something where the b-movie would somehow emerge while the character the narrator would be claiming that nothing was going on at all so that kind of this b-movie was going on around him that of which he was the main protagonist um, and yet all along his cuteness, as it were, this habit he had of trying to see the world only in very sweet terms um, would mean that actually he wouldn't even be able to perceive kind of quite kind of what was going on. So, yeah, I kind of wanted there to, although this is a very kind of interior novel, because it's all about kind of his thought processes, I liked the idea that what was going on was actually a very almost kind of quite a sort of B-movie plot. Just tell us a bit more about him and where he is and what he does and the situation that he finds himself okay, in. So this narrator, he's a nameless narrator, again, partly because I like the game that in some sense this could be me or that there would be some like to deliberately in the same way as trying to reduce the distance between the narrator and the reader. I wanted to kind of reduce the distance between potentially me and the narrator. But unlike me, he's still living at home with his parents um, in the suburbs of a sort of unnamed city. It is roughly London, but I wanted to do a slightly um, tropicalised London, a kind of not quite real London. Um, so he's out in a kind of generalised suburbia, uh, living with his parents and his wife and his dog, um, and is recently unemployed. Um, and so there is kind of this idea that he's slightly in this kind of period of unemployment and not really having grown up. He's meant to be kind of 30 or something, but he's, as it were, still a child in many ways. Because um, I think immaturity is something that's always interested me in my fiction. Um, and so he's basically gone kind of hysterical. So I think there's this kind of line I quite liked where he kind of says that he knows that all of the kind of breakdowns are normally meant that the old fashioned story is that it's the kind of bedridden women who go kind of crazy. And now he understands the kind of terror that they've understood, which is that to be kind of without profession, without a kind of job is actually a terrible affliction. And so that all of this kind of B movie kind of atmosphere blossoms from the fact of him kind of having, as it were, nothing to occupy his time with. So in this huge period of kind of, um, unemployment um terrible things occur one of the things that i thought as soon as i even sort of read started reading the blurb for the book is that it's written in a, a quite a different sort of language i mean it is a novel of registers in in lots of ways um but it's written in a kind of language that almost sounds like it's been translated from something else <laughs> there's something uncomfortable about the language yeah there's an idea that, i think what i wanted was to go with the sort of strangeness of the setting that it was both london and not london i wanted his language to be english but not quite english so it's like he's constantly mm. using registers and idioms from other languages of like mixing slang kind of so there's something almost I don't know, like inauthentic, I think it's not quite right, but there's something almost joyful, I think, actually, about the language use in it, that he's kind of inventing this kind of particular dialect. And I think it was because I wanted this sense of, it was partly this idea that it was almost a universe, like, I quite had this idea of a myth, like I wanted this idea that here is this nice, innocent person, or so kind of that's how he presents himself, who somehow kind of falls into absolute terror and affliction. Um, and there's a kind of the myth, I think, that was the back of my mind that I kind of mentioned in the book is this Indian story I really loved. 
this prince who dreams that he falls asleep um, and in his kind of dream goes kind of suddenly is no longer a prince but is in just some kind of outcast sort of shanty town where he meets a girl, they marry, they have kids. So he lives this life of absolute destitution um, and then suddenly wakes up and to find that he's back as being a prince and the kind of courtiers are saying, wow, you just dropped off for a kind of second. So in fact, nothing has happened. Or so he thinks until then he goes out in his kind of limousine and kind of somehow passes the shanty town where a woman comes up to him saying, where have you been for 10 years? You know, kind of, so it's this idea that reality and kind of fiction and, and dream are kind of mixing that was very important, I think, in the book. And so that was part of the kind of idea behind the language, that it would also be this slightly dreamlike language um, that was, I suppose, some kind of interior language. It was his own kind of um, dialect or kind of way of speaking. You've always played with these kind of ideas. I mean, it's interesting to hear you talk about immaturity. I think your last novel was actually told from the point of view of a very elderly man, yeah. wasn't it? It was about a, uh, an elderly man. But you've always sort of played with this idea of reality, not reality. And a lot of people, I think, have assumed or have described it as as, as writing that has a very European tradition. Interesting, when, I, when you said the, the thing that you said earlier about um, an interior novel, it made me think a little bit about Saul Bellow. And I don't know whether you feel that there's this sort of mashup of, of kind of cultures and, and writing traditions in your work. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've, I've always loved reading in other traditions, like kind of the European tradition. And I think in this, it's true, Bellow is definitely someone I've loved since I was like 15. So I know that he's always there slightly. And it's interesting because I think I was reading his letters while writing this, and I think one of the things that's interesting to me about Bello is how he can have such a large register, as it were, that like there is a way in which nobody speaks like kind of anyone actually kind of speaks in a Bello novel. Like there's too much range from the kind of the high intellectual to the kind of low kind of gangster. Um, and I wanted to do something similar here. And I think what really interested me here, though, was the kind of different types of novel where people are either thinking or talking and where sometimes you can't tell the difference. So... Partly, I think, novels like kind of Roth's Portnoy, which is both kind of highly interior, but is also meant to be him on the couch kind of talking. And also a European tradition of people like Bochum Rabal, who um, actually I've done an introduction for Vintage before, um, where he does these novels where they're kind of headlong, talky novels, like one which is in only one sentence, but lasts for kind of 150 pages. Um, and the idea is that he's, they're both highly interior monologue, but they're somehow being performed for kind of other people. And I quite liked that kind of game of a kind of monologue that wasn't quite a monologue. Like it wasn't just an interior monologue, but in some way it was addressed, but you don't quite know who it's addressed to. You've mentioned the word game now several times in this conversation. <laughs> I mean, that your novels are always funny and your works are always funny because, you know, apart from the novels, there's a book about translation. There's a sort of novella with a, another brilliant title, Kapow. Um there are always these kind of games and play going on, aren't there? Yeah, definitely. Although I think what interests me, and this this felt, it was interesting, it was much harder. It took me five years. Like, it took me much longer to write. And I think felt, I don't know, like because I think by the end, it actually becomes sort of incredible, hopefully becomes incredibly kind of sad, or at least kind of the tone has massively shifted. So I think what always interests me is trying to kind of approach what is often, I think, quite frightening subject matter for me, or certainly kind of like, things that I take very seriously but to try and approach them in a relatively indirect or light way like almost as if it's to trick me into being able to kind of think about them so I would say that in one sense they definitely there's always some kind of linguistic play going on or, or structural play um, so like here there's one I think in a way there's less in this novel than in others there's one kind of game with time where the kind of time shifts suddenly 
but for me i think also this was actually a much more sober novel in many ways like kind of i felt i don't know well hopefully by the end of it, there is a certain kind of um total terror that is meant to come through <laughs> <laughs> um you've been twice listed on on granta's um selection of the best of young british novelists once when you were very young before your first novel politics had even been yeah. published and i just wondered whether you thought that there was still a sort of experimental vein in British fiction or whether it was sort of actually kind of rather conformist these days? Oh, that's a horrible question. I mean, I think... It's an awful question, isn't it? I'm sorry. Without pronouncing on... I mean, without... Like, I, I think at any point in history, I reckon every novelist would think, you know, that well, always there is going to be a mixture of highly experimental work going on and not. And I think... That's true of now. I think there is a certain, I would say in general, there is a certain maybe kind of orthodoxy of a relatively realist novel with a relatively present day socio-political kind of concern. But at the same time, there are so many novels that aren't like that, that I don't feel there's some kind of, it doesn't feel that you can't try and experiment or that there's no um, possibility. But does it feel that, that you will, would find a sort of, a, you know, an interested readership? Well, I hope so. <laughs> like, and, um, <laughs> I didn't mean you. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I, I think so. I actually think almost there's more of an appetite now for I think more kind of different ways of telling stories than maybe there was when I started ten years ago. So actually, mm. I think, and in a sense, I think to me more and more, I think I was much more interested, as it were, almost intellectually in formal play kind of ten years ago when I started, and it's more like now I think you just have to set up some kind of authority in the in in the book that, and I think the reader, as long as you seem to kind of know what you're doing then the reader will go wherever you and want then you can subvert it and, and then you can do whatever it. you like but i mm. think so it's all about setting up something to do with just like that you have confidence as a reader in that this writer knows what they're up to and therefore if they're going to kind of go crazy i will go with them we need to go with you in this in this journey into the lurid and the cute exactly. thank you so much for coming to talk to us about it Not at all thank you very much we hope you've enjoyed our men's special and don't forget, if you've missed any of our podcasts or would like to listen again, perhaps particularly to that feminist special, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud and at vintage-books.co.uk. Do join us again next month when we'll have an award special to round up the year featuring Man Booker Prize winner Richard Flanagan and a host of vintage prize winners.